BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where Y is for You Only Live Twice, the fifth James Bond film starring Sean Connery as 007. My name is Tom Butler. And joining me as we hop aboard Blofeld's monorail and take a trip to Japan, he's just graduated from ninja training school, it's Mr. Brendan Duffy. Ah, hello. (laughs) We're also going to be dropping in a special guest in this episode, the writer of the cinematic Connery, Mr. AJ Black, who'll be joining us at certain points to add some context to Connery's history with the film. With this episode, we will have wrapped up our 27th and final James Bond film special. Uh, If you're listening in chronological order, obviously this is the fifth one, so... (laughs) (laughs) And talking about listening in chronological order, if you want to listen back to all of our episodes about the films, there is a playlist on Spotify, uh, which has been put in chronological order. Uh, You can find that link on our um, link tree. So, uh, yeah, if you want to go back and listen to them in in, in the order that they were uh, made in, then you can do that. So if you are listening in chronological order, you'll notice that the release date of You Only Live Twice, 1967, means that this is the first time in Bond history that fans had to wait for more than a year for the next fix of 007. That's kind of crazy to think about now, isn't it? Uh, it is, yeah, considering yeah. You know, we have to wait the span of all of those films for another one. <laughs> yeah, Doctor No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger and Thunderball were all released over four consecutive years, but You Only Live Twice came out a full 18 months after Thunderball, and we'll talk about why in a minute. And so coming after Thunderball, the original plan was to make Honor Majesty's Secret Service as the next film, but to keep Sean Connery happy and to avoid having to shoot early 1966, the producers opted to make You Only Live Twice. They obviously, to shoot that later in in the summer, there was going to be no snow um, if they were to shoot in summer. So Honor Majesty's Secret Service was backburnered and they made You Only Live Twice instead. So before we dive into the story of the film, here's a quick synopsis. 
A disaster in space pushes humankind towards World War Three, and only James Bond can prevent it in this action-packed movie spectacular. When US and Soviet spaceships are hijacked in Earth's orbit, 007 must race to prevent a nuclear war between the two, two superpowers. His dangerous mission takes him to Japan, where he must stop the Spectre organisation and its diabolical leader, Ernst Stavro Blofeld, hidden away in a massive headquarters in an inactive volcano. I have to say, on paper, that sounds awesome. <laughs> it does. Not only on Doesn't paper. It? Yeah, you're a big fan of this one, aren't you? Uh, yeah, but only a recent recent new fan to it, really. I think when we started, and if you go back and listen, then there'll be people who are listening to the early episodes. I don't think we showed much love for it at all. I think... All three of us. Maybe Wheatley was, was probably most on board with this one early on. Yeah, maybe. Um, I've definitely come around to it a lot more. Having watched it a lot over the last year um, yeah. in the cinema and at home, just think it's a, it's a rollicking adventure. There are st- stupid things with it, but um, what Bond film doesn't have stupid bits to it? But um, uh, let's dive straight into it. Let's th- stop beating around the bush. 1967, Brendan, tell us about the, the year this movie came out. Okay, so 1967, there's a lot of stuff going on. In terms of films, though, I'll just start off with that. So some quite iconic films from this year. To Serve With Love, The Dirty Dozen, Bonnie and Clyde, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, The Graduate. Those sort of films, it's, it's, they're very um, heavy, I would say. Yeah. So much needed that You Won't Live Twice comes in there. Uh, with its, with its nonsense but other stuff that happened in 67 this was the first um first color tv broadcast was made in the uk on bbc2 Interesting. so yeah that that was that was wimbledon championships with the first color color coverage um on green um <laughs> green yeah they probably yeah. mastered green at that um sergeant peppers was released yes. which if you remember when we interviewed uh john higgs love and let die he wrote that about the the parallels, and this is another parallel, really, because this is their first concept album, right? And if you look at You Only Live Twice, it's it's just bonkers, isn't it? It's 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 a concept bomb movie, really. And the first, it was the first album released, obviously, after they stopped touring, and this is the first one that's released after Connery decides he doesn't want to do Bond anymore. So, which we'll we'll, we'll go into, but obviously, at this point, nineteen sixty seven, this film is being released on the back of. Bond mania and spy mania, which was absolutely huge. Thunderball was still smashing box office records in April 66. And at that point, there were the, the first murmurings of unrest at Eon. And if you remember, we spoke about this in the Broccoli episode, the Saltzman episode, and probably the Eon episode. So this is where they came to that, um, the separation deal, where they agreed that they would, they came up with the arrangement where they would rotate who produced which picture. So, and this is this is a cubby one, right? Because it's an outlandish. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So picture, he he yeah. takes the producing reins for this one, and um, he said that. Well, he acknowledged how how this had come about, and he said, "I knew that Harry Saltzman and I wouldn't be able to conceal our own disagreements much longer. It wasn't just a conflict of personalities. While other partnerships have survived." It was, at least the way I saw it, two totally contrasting attitudes to Bond. And we see that from the films that they make. So this one, You Only Live Twice, nonsensical. The following one, Under Majesties, <laughs> is, is grounded. Diamonds Are Forever, nonsensical. Live and Let Die, a bit more grounded. and then But with Papa Shango. Not uh, Papa Shango. <laughs> <laughs> Baron Samadhi. With Baron, you know what I meant. <laughs> with Baron Samadhi, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last one before they have it, Harry leaves, but Cubby 
the, the man with the golden gun. So yeah, this this is the the start of that. That's one thing that's obviously hectic. Yeah. Not only that, another another Bond movie has been announced, which obviously isn't is not ideal. It's Casino Royale. Go back to Casino Royale episode for that for more nonsensical. Uh, that is God, that yeah. is off the map. That one. Yeah. Um, so this one was was announced obviously around that time of the of the sort of ongoings at Eon. So they had that to deal with, and then they had this to deal with. But Casino Royale was released in the same year as well. So in April '67, um, a few months before you only live twice. So this was one of the first Battle of the Bonds, and obviously we covered it in the episode. But it, it was it cost an eye watering amount, and um, Charles K. Feldman. It was the last film he ever made. Basically killed him, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. The the stress, um, the difficulties on set, off set. You know, it it's. Yeah, do go back and listen to it because it's fascinating. Not only that, Operation Kid Brother, 1967, uh, which we talked about in the Connery episode, but it starred Sean Connery's younger brother, Neil, and he played essentially a Bond ripoff. It was Italian, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so that that did nothing for uh, Connery's feeling towards playing playing Bond either. Um, and not only that, it, 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 in the casting that you had Adolfo Celli, Daniela Bianchi, Bernard Lee, Anthony Dawson, and Lois Maxwell. And obviously, Sean was absolutely fuming, especially at Lois Maxwell and Bernard Lee. Bernard Lee told him, he said, I told him that I was making more money in that one film than I'd made in all the official Bond films put together. I mean, surely a man like Connery would understand. (laughs) (laughs) And then outside of the film world, we had the space race, which heavily influenced the the story of this film what was going on at the time so in march 1965 the first spacewalk ever was performed by alexei leonov and then later on in march the u.s launched their first multi-person u.s spacecraft gemini 3 with virgil grissom and john young so obviously this is very much in everyone's thoughts at the time yeah yeah um with that race to eventually get into the moon i guess is what they're 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 aiming for and then june 65 the first american did a spacewalk on gemini 4 Um, and then we move forward to march 1966 there was the first docking in space and um, neil armstrong was on gemini 8 for that one so this this being constantly in the news and talked about it meant that the 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 writers the producers you know they would they would implement it. it Yeah, because that's what Bond has has always done. And uh, it was a very exciting... I mean, it's hard to imagine now, isn't it? I mean, space, going to space is still exciting. However, then, it must be absolutely mind-blowing. What, you, they don't even have colour TV. I mean, that's the first colour <laughs> yeah, TV. Yeah, exactly. And yet people are in space. Mm. And there's two countries who are at Cold War with each other racing yeah. to do this. I mean, it's just like the, the, the drama is real, right? Um, yeah. And yeah. that's reflected in in um, You Only Live Twice. It opens with a huge space sequence. The mm. poster shows Bond holding a space helmet. They're yeah. sort of signposting it. This is a space race movie, aren't they? Um, even be- way before, you know, Moonraker uh, jumped the shark and, and shot Bond into space. They tease you with space all yeah. the way through this movie. Um, it's a big, big part of it. Welcome, Honourable 007. He's the one and only 
Sean Connery. <laughs> Welcome to Japan, Mr. Bond. Shall we go into pre-production then? Yeah. So, uh, at the Japanese premiere of Thunderball in, in, in 65, Cubby Broccoli announced that Lewis Gilbert was going to be the director of the next James Bond film. Now, he was a British filmmaker known to be very, very reliable. He'd served in the RAF during World War II, made a lot of military films. Um, and when he came out of the service, made more military films, including Sink the Bismarck, The Sea Shall Not Have Them, Reach for the Sky, Albert R.N., Carver Name with Pride. These are all big sort of um, military epics. Um, and you can see the military side coming through in his movies, right? Um, in this one and in um, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, there's mm. Bond in the naval outfit. There's a lot of naval iconography in the movie. So Lewis Gilbert brings some of that to Bond. He was massive at the time in 1967, riding um, on the success of Alfie, his adaptation of the Bill Norton novel and play of the same name, uh, starring Michael Caine. That had earned five Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, which is kind of crazy. And Alfie, if you've never seen it, well worth seeing. Uh, not the remake, though. Um, <laughs> so... When Lewis Gilbert was initially approached by Cubby and Harry, he turned it down. He said he felt he had nothing new to, the, to add to the series. But Cubby called him a second time on the next day, famously telling him, you're making a mistake. You have the world's biggest audience and he's waiting to see what kind of a hash you make of it. So he's kind of putting him on the spot there. Um, but Lewis Gilbert talking about it later, he said that directing a Bond film was actually a lot easier than you think. Um uh, because basically everything is lined up for the director to basically just point the camera and start shooting. He says you've got the sets, the locations, the actors, the stunts. And he said it's like being a general in charge of an army. So you just point them in the right direction and say go. Uh, he said that the hardest scenes he felt to direct were when it was just four people sitting around a table in conversation. Because you had to make that interesting somehow. Directing Bond was easy for Lewis because everything was already on camera was already interesting already so mm. you just set them off and uh, that was it so um and talking about working with lewis gilbert the film screenwriter roald dahl who we'll talk about in a second said that lewis is the only director i ever worked with who is any kind of a decent fellow he was absolutely splendid he said that lewis gilbert was always giving really good contributions in script meetings he was also very faithful to the script when he shot it which for a writer is all that you can ask for and he felt that Lewis Gilbert never let his ego get in the way of getting the script on film, which actually is quite is quite good. He said, you either trust your writer or you don't. So um, a filmmaker who um, really understood the power of the of the written word. Mm. Um, and yeah. by all accounts, I know that um, Roger Moore really enjoyed working with with Lewis Gilbert as well. And in fact, I would say he's probably my favorite of the Bond directors. Um as a personal preference uh, but that's uh that's that's the director who have we got writing the script i've just named up to him already but yeah spoilers well richard maybaum was unavailable for this one so november 1965 they announced that sydney bohm uh is working on it and he delivered a treatment which was closely based on the novel but then um harold bloom who we spoke about many many episodes ago um, and he had worked on an episode of Captain Gallant of the Foreign Legion, which was a TV show that Harry Saltzman produced. So they'd got him him on board, and he took over the writing uh, the writing efforts. And um, he'd he'd used the skeleton of the treatment 
that Sidney Bohm had created and he added to that uh, and he delivered a draft screenplay in February 66. But Cubby Broccoli said uh, it, it, it didn't really work um, and so Bloom left and they got Roald Dahl on board. Dahl had known uh, known Fleming for about 20 years prior to this. Um, Through es- espionage, wasn't it, in, the, yeah. in World War Two? Mm. And he talked about him. He said there was a great red glow when Ian Fleming came into the room. And he uh, he described Fleming as sparky, witty, caustic uh, companion, full of jokes and also full of obscure bits of knowledge. But in terms of You Only Live Twice, Dahl wasn't a fan of the novel. He said it was uh, tired, bad and Ian's worst book. So... Um, it's one of the late ones, isn't it? You it's the last. Twice. It was the last one published while he was alive, right? Um, yeah, so it's definitely towards the end. And um, it's the mad one with the po- uh, Blofeld and the Poison Island and the night, the the suits of armor and stuff, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Which, uh, yeah, th- this is the first one to stray away from from the novels. So yeah. there's there's not much in there that you will find that trans translates across to the film. Um, so, yeah, um, Roald Dahl didn't initially want to do it, though. Um, he said, if you've got enough money to live comfortably, there's no reason in the world to do a screenplay. It's an awful job. But he did need the money, and that's why he took it on eventually. So, um, yeah, he got a call from Cubby Broccoli, and um, he, he said he hadn't heard of him, which I, I find remarkable if you think, you know, this, the height of the, the mania where we're at, you think you would have. Um, but... Um, he said, a man with the last name of a vegetable. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how you base your opinions on people. Uh, uh, he was also wasn't a Bond fan, Roald Dahl. He'd only seen Goldfinger. And um, so the producers said that you need to, that you, you better watch the others right away. So um, they sent him a projector and someone to work it. So he, he had all the all the films. But this, this meant he... He knew the sort of level of producer he was working with. They were so efficient, so quick to to get everything sorted. Um, and just th- the way they threw money at everything, as we've seen throughout the whole franchise. Um, so, yeah, the producers, they struck struck the deal with um, with Dahl's agent. And, um, yeah, the, the terms were completely agreed. And he started working with Lewis Gilbert. And Lewis Gilbert said, Roald is an interesting writer for a Bond film. He's a bit quirky, isn't he? He did have a reputation for not being easy to get on with, but I got on very well with him. Lewis Gilbert said that they actually got him on for a specific reason because they wanted someone with a storytelling skill. And at this point, Roald Dahl was well known for his short stories. So yeah, they they got him on board and um, wanted wanted him to bring his dark humour with it as well. So yeah, as you say... Dahl and Gilbert, they enjoyed each other's company, they enjoyed working together. And Roald Dahl was told that he had to deliver his first draft in just eight weeks. And then a second one four more, in four weeks later. And then a complete script in 20 weeks. And uh, he, he spoke about the script conferences. And he said Harry would usually nod off to sleep <laughs> in the middle. But yeah, he delivered his um, his first treatment in May 66. And obviously heavily inspired by the astronauts walking in space. So he, he it went into the script. Oh yeah, so in, in January 1966, a US Air Force bomber went missing off the coast of Spain and it had two bombs on board. It it led to speculation that there was some something wasn't quite right and there was a one of the countries had been unfriendly to, to to the other. 
So Broccoli said both stories gave our script a strong flavour authenticity. So that, along with the space race, really heavily give them these ideas for this. Roald Dahl was told that uh, they'd found a large volcano in Japan and that that should play a major part in the story. Now, Roald Dahl has said that he's never read any of Harold Bloom's uh, treatment or uh, drafts, but obviously he said they had probably, and hadn't told me, commissioned a screenplay from him, and it hadn't been any good, but had picked out that idea and possibly one or two others which they had asked me to put in. So it's a case of, it's not that he's read it and stole those ideas, the producers have just relayed the ideas back to back Roald to him, Dahl. Yeah. yeah. And Dahl was also told uh, by Cubby to begin the film with Bond faking his own death to then give give his enemies you know, false information. Sounds like at this point, Broccoli should just have written the script. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so and we covered this when we talked about Harold Bloom as well with his credit that he got because he just got additional material by... Mm. And Bloom had said that Roald Dahl had changed none of the action that, that he'd himself written. And he should have been given a joint credit at the very least. And he said, had this picture been done here in Hollywood, I would have been properly credited. But the British weren't crazy about using American writers. I was very disappointed. And he, he went on to say that he made everything you saw on the screen. So, I mean, we'll never know, will we? Because we've, we've got no way of seeing the before and the after. Um, I'm sure the scripts must be out there somewhere if, if any of the readers have got them and would love to see them. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the, the script was delivered by Roald Dahl. Broccoli and Saltzman were delighted with it. Um, but Roald Dahl himself said, it's the biggest load of bullshit I've ever put my hand to. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but, but he was still reluctant to share the credit with Bloom, which, yeah... <laughs> He said, I was told there'd be a share. I said, well, there's no way anyone's going to share the full credit. And uh, that's that's what happened. So that's why you get the additional material by, because Roald Dahl stood by and, uh, yeah, stood by his bullshit. So we've got a script in place somehow. <laughs> yeah. I uh, just want to say we did an ep- we did a, a big lengthy segment on D- Roald Dahl back on the, mm. the D episode. So well worth revisiting that. I know there's a lot more detail in there that you can uh, enjoy on there uh, but yeah i mean something we talked about then was that it's, this is the point in the bond films where you get the element the fanta- the fantasy element starts coming in and that's got to be that's got to be a roll doll um uh element hasn't it um i mean as, to, as, that, as people that have no doubt grown up reading his kids books yeah absolutely yes yeah. And there's also the the death of Aki, which is sort of that sudden death that happens in the in the middle, and that ha- how that may or may not have been influenced by the death of Dahl's daughter, um, who died very suddenly. Um, those people have linked those two things together, um, but I, I I think it's a terrific uh, change to the formula at this mm. point, and one yeah. that sticks, right? Yeah. So key crew. So um, cinematographer Ted Moore, who'd done the previous um, four movies, he was unavailable. He was off shooting a film called A Man for All Seasons, for which um, was an Oscar winning film eventually. So they hired Freddie Young to be the cinematographer. And Young was probably the most uh, important and recognisable cinematographer in the UK film industry. He won two Oscars by this point for his work with David Lean on Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago. 
But interestingly, Lewis Gilbert said he was amused because he brought this guy on, Freddie Young, this acclaimed filmmaker. And Freddie Young was like, do you mind if my friend comes to the set to see the film being made? Because he's really interested. His friend turned up. It was David Lean. And David Lean, this acclaimed genius filmmaker, wanted to see how a Bond film was being made. So uh, just Lewis Gilbert just just was amazed. Um, uh, he found that just just incredible. Um, but uh, Freddie Young is someone we'll cover on next week's episode, uh, the XYZ. So, uh, yeah, come back for more on him. Uh, returning as editor on the James uh, on You Only Live Twice was Peter Hunt. But there was a bit of a, uh, a roundabout journey for him coming on to uh, edit this movie. Basically, after all the work he'd put into making Thunderball the, such success... Uh, Peter Hunt had made it clear that he wanted to direct the next Bond film himself, so you only live twice. But when Cubby and Harry decided they wanted um, Lewis Gilbert to do it, Peter Hunt threw his toys out of the pram and resigned as the editor on the James Bond film. So he wasn't going to work on you only live twice at all. Um, they instead offered him a holiday. So Cubby, the, ever the di diplomat, offered Peter Hunt, go on holiday, travel around the world, and see how you feel after you've done that. Peter Hunt goes on this around the world trip. While he's in Japan, they're filming there. He goes down to set, patches things up with Cubby, and he then goes on to be second unit director on You Only Live Twice. And we'll talk about more about how he became editor later in the episode. Ken Adam is also back on his fourth Bond film as production designer. Um, and he arguably delivers his most audacious sets ever on Bond. Mm -hmm. And again, we'll talk about that in more detail. Also on there, uh, You Only Live Twice, you've got William P. Cartledge. He's a familiar face on the Bond DVD extras and a regular collaborator with Lewis Gilbert. Uh, he was the assistant director. You've got Norman Wanstall, someone we talked about recently, as dubbing editor, special effects by John Steers and stunts by Bob Simmons. And you've also got, this is the film where Vic Armstrong makes his Bond debut as well as a stunt performer. Titles by Morris Binder, music by John Barry, more on those in a bit. Um, but just to say, you mentioned this uh, this volcano they found in Japan. Lewis Gilbert, Harold Jack Bloom, Freddie Young and Ked Adam went to Japan to scout for locations. And they basically charted the whole of Japan by helicopters flying through the air. And they were looking for a suitable castle to be Blofeld's lair in the movie. But they actually found the volcanoes instead at a place at, called Kyushu. And this sparked the idea of the volcano lair. Um, also on that trip, the uh, some of the things that they ended up doing that ended up in the movie was going to the the, the bathhouse, and also also the ninjas, and the crew. Uh, this this um, expedition, the small um, group of filmmakers who'd gone out there, they were due to fly home, but at the last minute they were told that they could go and see a ninja demonstration. They really wanted to see it before they flew home. So they changed their flights, went to see the ninja, ninja, ninja demonstration. Later that day, it, they found out that the flight they were meant to be on crashed and had everyone on board had died in this plane crash. This is the BOAC Flight 911. And it was, in fact, the third fatal passenger airline accident in Tokyo that month. So wow. um, they were really lucky uh, at that mm. stage. But there you've got some some new faces and some, and some familiar ones as well. Um, and... To talk about uh, Sean Connery's return, we are going to be joined by our guest, AJ Black. Welcome to the show, AJ Black, the author of Cinematic Connery. 
Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Ah, it's our pleasure. We're talking You Only Live Twice. Um, and in this part of the show, we usually um, have a look at the, the, the returning uh, Bond actor. And uh, as you've written the book on Connery, we thought you'd invite you on. <laughs> Certainly um, written a book. <laughs> you've written a book. <laughs> so the book's The Cinematic Connery, and it sort of charts his, um, all, of his, all of his movie roles. Is that right? Yeah, it goes through from pre-Bond in the late 50s all the way through to um, the uh, questionable League of Extraordinary Gentlemen right at the very end of his career. <laughs> and then, yeah, it gets into... It's not a biography as such, but it gets into the movies themselves, what they meant at the time, how they fitted into the wider culture. And um, he tracks his story through those, really. So, and But the Bonds obviously have a very big component all the way through really because bond stays with him right from the beginning almost to the almost to the very end so yeah it's a good yeah. right up to sir billy sir billy yeah. it, it's a bit <laughs> that was a fun one it, fun in quote marks to, to research yeah so on you only live twice we've got sean connery returning uh for the fifth time to play bond um uh but at what sort of stage of his career was he at in 1967 when he signed up for You Only Live Twice? What can you tell us? Well, 67, he's he's kind of reached that pop culture height in the 60s, you know, because arguably he's, as everyone listening to this, I'm sure will already know, he's arguably one of the iconic figures of the 1960s in terms of entertainment, popular culture. You know, he's, his visage on those Bond posters is up there with some of the biggest iconography of that decade. So by 67, he is there. You know, he's, he's there's the, uh, did you see that uh, film Last Night in Soho? Where yes. you see the billboard of Thunderball and he's just emblazoned. So he's reached that point and his career is around Bond. He's, he's a star name now, but his career around Bond has mixed various roles that sort of lean into the bond persona you know things like hitchcock's marnie where he's he plays a bit of a devilish kind of character woman of straw for basil dearden where he's playing another suited devilish sort of role so he's 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 sort of doing a riff on bond without directly doing bond but he seems to be caught up in that in that area but by 67 he's he's kind of had enough really by by once once you only live twice comes around which is the last film he's contracted to do as part of the deal with Eon, he's ready to move on now. He's ready to put Bond behind him. As much as Bond is what has made him the probably the biggest star in the world by this point, mm-hmm. if not one of them. Uh, uh, am I right in thinking that on the way, or before production starts, that he actually announces that he's that's it, it's going to be his last film, yeah. his last Bond yeah. film? He says, he says, this is it, I am done. You know, and he's quite in press interviews. He's quite to the point about that, you know, very vocally, openly saying, I'm not doing any more after this. And, you know, there are attempts to get him to do more after this, but he's he's he wanting to draw a line in the sand. He wants to move on. He wants to do other things with his career. And he's got a level of bitterness at this point about Bond, mainly based on a lot of the contract negotiations, a lot of the things he feels like he's been done out of in terms of, financially more than anything else you know i think there is there is there is a, fr- a strained relationship with cubby broccoli and harry saltzman at this point which is meaning that he's he's finding it hard to really engage with this creation that's made his name so yeah he's very clear i'm done <laughs> i'm done after yolt 
because he wanted to be more involved, didn't he, with uh, with the producing side? Yeah, yeah, he wanted to be what um, I suppose Daniel Craig kind of became, really. You know, in during his tenure, where he's he's got that sort of. I think he had a Daniel Craig had a co-producer credit, I think, didn't he, on some of the later films. Spectre and um, No Time to Die, yeah. Right, yeah. So he's he's much more involved in the process. He's much more connected to the directors and the script. Whereas Connery was still... It's still that era where you're almost a gun for hire, I guess. And I think later on, Roger Moore didn't have as big a problem with that in many ways. You know, he turned up and did what he had to do and that was it. But Connery, Connery always had the aspiration of being a, an actor's actor. You know, he always wanted to be that guy. And I think it stemmed from... The fact that he, and we, I talk about this in the book, that he really did skirt that British new wave of actors coming out of the 50s. You know, people like Richard Harris, you know, Richard Burton, uh, Albert Finney, all of these actors who in the late 50s were really making their name on the theatre. They were making their name in popular, you know, far grittier movies than Connery. In fact, I, funnily enough, I was watching This Sport in Life recently with Richard Harris. Great early 60s movie. And I think Connery maybe auditioned for that at the time or he was he was discussed and he would have been great as this big burly rugby player hard drinking guy you know an alternative sort of path for him if he'd gone more down that road and he very much like I say skirted the edges of that you know he's becoming friends with people like Michael Caine who was on the edge of that so he's got those aspirations to be taken seriously and I think on the one hand while Bond makes him arguably a bigger star than any of those guys ever were it's tainted a little bit for him and he wants more he almost sees it as, as being beneath him to a certain yep. extent. And I think, obviously, with the films on the trajectory that they were on at this stage, they are getting more outlandish. The gadgets are getting more fantastical. Um, and you can see, well, I think that's obviously comes across a little bit in the film. And something we looked at as well was um, the fact that they... It, it seems to me that Eon delayed start of production on You Only Live Twice, perhaps as a way of keeping Connery happy. Well, yeah, I think generally they wanted they you know they wanted him to carry on, even though he was quite vocal about this and he was quite vocally frustrated by it all. You know, they once they got to the end of You Only Live Twice, they they were looking at on, on a Majesty's Secret Service, and they they there was a conflict between wanting him to carry on because they knew how big he was, but at the same time. A frustration of well he keeps bad mouthing this you know he keeps getting annoyed at the press intrusion at the fan intrusion which was a big powerful part of it particularly during you only live twice you know there's a famous uh story about how he's in the toilet and he gets in the bathroom and he gets mobbed by a bunch of fans and he's outraged that they've they've crossed this line you know and actually found him in a toilet and that's you know he really does reach a point there where but they they, they do they do go out of their way to try and appease him at this point because they know that he is very much inextricably tied up with this character, you know, and people will shout James Bond at him in the streets, not Sean Connery, you know. So he's he's defined by it, and that's part of the problem for him. So even though they want to bend over backwards to keep him happy at this point, he's it just pushes him further away, in a way, you know, all of the other things around it. Any other returning cast to talk about, Brendan? Uh, yeah, we've got Q back, um, played by Desmond Llewellyn again, and he actually got to do some uh, some field Q. He field flew Q. to Japan. Oh, welcome to Japan, Dad. Is my little girl hot and ready? Look, 007, I've had a long and tiring journey, probably to no purpose, and I'm in no mood for your juvenile quips. Also, Bernard Lee is back as M, 
And um, Lewis Gilbert, you know, said about about his struggle with alcohol, Bernard Lee's struggle with alcohol. And he said you had to sh- shoot him in the morning because you couldn't get him in the afternoon. Um, and William Cartledge said uh, Bernard went off to the pub and crashed the car after lunch. We picked oh, him up and brought him brought him back to Pinewood. Bernard was a problem. Um, so we we've talked about Bernard Lee in the M episode and um, that that ongoing struggle he had with alcohol. Um, but as you can see, this, this early on, you know, it, it's creating an issue. And Lois Maxwell completes the uh, MI6 team uh, as Money Penny again. But also we've got Bert Kwok. Hey, he's returning. He's Spectre number Spectre agent number three, and uh, he was previously a Chinese agent um, called Mister Ling in Goldfinger. And what? he he's also in the other Bond film this year as well, isn't he? Casino Royale. Of course he is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I think he's the only actor to appear in both the Bond films, the sixty-seven Bond films, as far as I know. Yeah. Did well, you read that story? Read oh, that story on. about uh, Desmond Llewellyn and the shorts? No. He had a real issue with the shorts that he was had to wear in the scenes as field cue. Um, he felt that they were not befitting for a man of his age and stature, um, and so uh, he got them to change them to military shorts, uh, which he felt were more acceptable. That's why he's got the khaki uniform on uh, in those scenes. But what were uh, they yeah. before? I don't know. Hot pants. Know. Hot pants. Yeah. <laughs> God don't. <laughs> Right, new cast. So Bond girls. So Roald Dahl famously described the Bond girl formula. Talking about you only live twice. Said you put in three girls, no more, no less. Girl number one is pro Bond. She stays around roughly through the first reel of the picture. And then she's bumped off by the enemy. That's Aki. Uh, Girl number two is anti-Bond. She works for the enemy and stays around throughout the middle third of the picture. She must capture Bond and Bond must save himself by bowling her over with sheer magnetism. This girl should also be bumped off preferably in original fashioned. That's Helga Brand. And then girl number three is violently pro-Bond. She occupies the third, uh, final third of the picture and must on no account be killed, nor must she permit Bond to take any lecherous liberties with her until the very end of the story. We keep that for the fade out. Um, and then the other Bond girl, you've got Sai Chin, uh, who is the girl in the pre-title sequence who Bond uh, is in bed with. And this is the first of her two appearances in the Bond film. She later returned 39 years later in Casino Royale. Yeah, that's the, the, they're the Bond girls. Uh, we've talked about um, all of them so far uh, in previous episodes, so I won't uh, rehash too much here. But Akiko Wakabayashi is Aki, and, and she was a character that had been created for the film. Um, uh, and, and she was a Japanese actress, um, and, and she had also uh, uh, been in a, a, a James Bond parody in Japan uh, before she was in um, You Only Live Twice, and she had been in the Woody Allen film What's Up Tiger Lily as well. Um, uh, the filmmakers to shoot in Japan, they had been told that they had to use a certain amount of um, Japanese actors, and so that's why you've got two real Japanese stars, uh, Kiko Wakabayashi and Mia Hammer um, in the two leads. And these two were chosen uh, because they were expected that they would be able to learn English very quickly. And so they were flown over to England to learn English and they were put in with English families, sent to school in the daytime. Um, but uh, me, Hammer, unfortunately, didn't get very on very well with uh, learning English. So they swapped their characters around and Aki, so the character that Aki was playing, her name was changed from Suki to Aki. And interestingly for Wakabayashi, her 
uh, uh, post UN Live Twice credits, there's just one film and one TV series. She got an injury and then left the film uh, film business for a quieter life. And that actually is reflected uh, in Me Hammer as well. Again, she had been recommended for the film because she was good at, with English. And she also flew out with um, Akiko. And she fa- um, uh, and while she was there, she was told that her English wasn't too good enough and they were going to have to axe her from the film. Um, but after having taken her out and told her this... Um, Lewis Gilbert was informed that she was basically going to kill herself because of the shame of losing the role in the Bond film. So they basically said, we'll swap the roles. You can have the other role. And she obviously then stayed on the picture and she was actually dubbed in anyway by Nikki van der Zeel. So um, we'll talk about her next week as well. Uh, Talking about uh, You Only Live Twice much later on, um, she said, I'd never seen a 007 movie. I had no idea 007 was such a huge international hit. It was an honour to be a Bond girl, but once was enough. I didn't want that image to stick with me. Uh, and it was also one of her last film roles. And she walked out of her contract uh, with a, a Japanese studio to raise a family. So, um, yeah, she also lives a very quiet life now, away from the public eye. Um, and then Helga Brandt, which played by Karen Dorr, um, who was a, a, a German actor. And uh, I believe we, we sort of... Um, talked about her in the past as well but she was sort of a Fiona Volpe type Mm. um, character and I think she's she's quite interesting she's got the red hair again makes her sort of similar to Fiona Volpe Um, but yeah three interesting Bond girls and specifically Aki I think she's a real sort of change in the norm from what we've had in the past you know she's a very capable secret agent herself um, very much the match for Bond um, and, and, and a sort of the, a change for what we expect from Bond girls going forward. Yep. So then we've got the villains, and we've got uh, we've got Jan Verick as Ernst Stavro Blofeld. Do we? Who we? Well, sort of. We talked about this before. Harry Saltzman wanted comedic actor from Czechoslovakia Jan Verick to take the part of Ernst Stavro Blofeld. And he accepted. And obviously he turns up and he meets Lewis Gilbert. And uh, Lewis Gilbert sees this kind, grandfatherly, Santa Claus-like character come through the door who can barely speak English. And this really sort of raised some doubts in Lewis Gilbert's mind, as you would imagine. But he gave him the benefit of the doubt and decided to to go ahead and shoot with him. Uh, But it took only five days before he was fired. You know, he realised he just wasn't wasn't right for the part at all um and they replaced him with uh donald pleasance and that's who we get in the film um but you can still see jan verrick you can see the top of his hair in some of the scenes uh at the end of the film especially when bond meets blofeld for the first time you can definitely see that he's there uh, he sees white hair at the top but uh donald pleasance he had the same agent as connery so he was able to sort of take over at short notice and he says, I ended up spending three very, very intensive weeks playing that role to the bolts on the camera instead of another actor. Understandably, it really wasn't an enormously rewarding or fulfilling experience. He said that the producers liked his style, um, but they didn't find him physically imposing, which is what they wanted from the character of Blofeld. So they decided to go with his suggestion of giving Blofeld a physical defect. So they gave him a facial scar and... Um, William Cartledge said that in in those days you actually used glue when it dried 
it pinched your skin and made it look like an ugly scar. That's quite painful. He ended up with really severe bruising down his face. Um, I mean, it looks painful to look at. It it really does, yeah. So, yeah, obviously, Donald Pleasant's version of Blofeld goes on to inspire, mainly, the most memorable is Dr. Evil from Austin Powers series. Yeah. But um, he's also just, it, just the blueprint of many, many villains moving forward, really. Um, so absolutely iconic, um, and especially with his uh, white Persian cat as well, who is sadly traumatised in, uh, <laughs> in the, the end when the explosions are going off. Just It gets worse every time I see it. That cat is, is just really wants to escape, and um, it, it did escape, and it went missing for a couple of days, actually, and they found it hiding some of the rafters in, uh, at Pinewood on a set oh my god yeah um then we have um another villain we've got mr asato who um he is a he's a member of specter played by teru shimada and um the actor he he appeared in different shows the doris day show six million dollar man hawaii five oh you see he's sort of done the done the rounds of that era of american tv but in hawaii five oh he played mr Mr. Shigato, who was a Japanese businessman. Um, that's his probably his most famous role outside of uh, of this. And then we've got uh, Peter... F- F- how do you pronounce his name? Peter Fanani Maver? Mavia, yeah. Mavia, as, as car driver. And he's one of... Oh, uh, Mr. Why have you brought this guy up, Brendan? <laughs> oh, I wonder. <laughs> well, I mean, to be, to be fair, this fight scene is iconic the fight scene is fantastic other, it is really yeah. good where they're whacking each other with a sofa and they're wha- it, yeah. and bond's got those awesome shoes on and uh, i love that scene i love yeah it. heavily uh choreographed they worked a long time on that scene to uh to get it right and it, and it does pay off massively um, go on say the line what line who is, who is he <laughs> peter Fanane maver there we go move on is, who is he though come he's, on he's related to someone just say it. <laughs> Everyone's well, here to hear it. His grandson. He, he is the grandfather of the Rock. Who? The Rock. Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Yeah. There you go. There's your trivia. look at the allies then so a couple of really good ones here you've got tetsura tamba as tiger tanaka tanaka is the head of the japanese secret service in you only live twice Fantastic. we covered him at great length on our tea episode it was the tiger tanaka tetsura tamba it was the most tea person <laughs> we could find um uh, he was voiced in the movie by robert rietti and um it was tamba who helped uh, find a lot of the japanese cast locally he was the one that sort of helped find Akiko Wakabayashi and Mia Hammer. Um, and Tamba got the role after Toshiro Mifune turned it down, the legendary Japanese actor. But please revisit our tea episode to hear some of t- what, what happened to Tetsuro Tamba after Bond and the weird sex cult that he set up. Oh, fantastic. Um, and then we've got Charles Gray as Dicko Henderson. Now, Charles, this is Charles Gray's first James Bond movie appearance and he plays Bond's contact in Japan. Uh, he's a character in the Fleming novel, actually, and he has a false leg and he offers Bond a martini that is stirred and not shaken before he's killed. And of course, Charles Gray returns just a few films later as Blofeld in Diamonds Are Forever. 
And again, I believe, is it The Spy Who Loved Me is the voice in Cairo? Anyway. Mm. Um, yes, you're right, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's uh, that's it. So I mean that's that's the cast. I mean it's it's a it's a decent lineup, but let's dive into production. So we have the pre-title scene and uh the f- the filming began at Pinewood actually, July 1966 and they filmed that first scene where Connery is in bed with um Sai Chin. And that's where he you know he gets peppered with bullets. And then the the opening sequences in Hong Kong they use location footage of a sh- of a street in Kowloon. We see v- the Victoria Harbour in Hong Kong as well, uh, and the sea burial of Bond, and then the retrieval of of his corpse is filmed off uh, Gibraltar and the Bahamas. And that was the the scenes with the um, the aircraft taking Bond after his death was shot over Buckinghamshire when it was supposed to be Japan. So Bakumshir, I mean, it looks, it does not look like Japan, but that that's where we see, you know, that's, that's the pre-title sequence there. And then it's off to Japan for a lot of it, isn't it? Yes. So the production, um, uh, yeah, filmed in Japan from July, 1966, while the, the world cup was actually taking place in England. Um, there's actually some really co- great photos of the England world cup team visiting Pinewood and you've got Connery with Bobby Moore and all that sort of stuff those photos are well worth seeking out but anyway while the World Cup was going on they were in Japan they were actually following it quite closely while in Japan and Cubby would lay on football matches and all sorts of stuff to keep everyone happy over there but some of the locations uh, that they filmed in Japan uh, one of them was the Karamai Kokugi Kan the National Sports Zone which is where they have the sumo fight and I didn't know this mm. before, but a real life sumo champion, like a huge celebrity at the time, this guy called Sado y- Yanama, he actually cameos playing himself in the fight. Um, and they packed the dome out with 12,000 real extras by giving away free tickets to see this legendary um, sumo star. And this was the scene that Freddie Young invited David Lean along to watch being filmed. Like I said, you've got uh, some field cue action there uh, filmed in Japan. And the fight with the gyrocopter and the helicopters were filmed over the mountains of Kyushu. Um, but the lip of the volcano where you see Bond and um, Kissy Suzuki looking into, that was filmed at the lip of a dormant volcano on Mount Shinmo. Um, they actually had to fly up there in helicopters, uh, or at least they flew the most important crew members up there in helicopters, <laughs> but the rest of the crew had to go up on horseback. Um, and there was one day I read about where the, a huge fog defend, def, descended on the mountain and they all had to walk back down because the helicopters couldn't come up and pick them. And Lewis Gilbert remembers um, Sean Connery and Cubby Broccoli, you know, helping to carry all the equipment down the mountain. So um, quite an interesting uh, vision that um, other locations in Japan included the Kobe docks the Kagoshima seaport a place called Himeji Castle which was the ninja training school uh, and that castle is also used uh, in some Akira Kurosawa films as well uh, Kegamusha and uh, Ran and then you've got the Hotel New Atani which is still there in Japan and that was the exterior of Asato Chemicals and just a few things to say about Japan. Uh, I don't know if you remember our Barbara, Barbara Broccoli episode, but there was that story of her being on set when they were filming the tea, um, the tea ceremony. And that mm. was one of her first memories of, of being on a Bond set. And then 
you've also got the fishing village um, in Akimi, which is on the southern coast of Kyushu, where the volcanoes were. And they filmed there, but they were sort of troubled by um, paparazzi there. Uh, and then something to note about those scenes there is that Connery's wife, Diane Shalento, was there on set. And she actually doubled for some of the Japanese women swimming in the sea because she was a much stronger swimmer than they were. And she just popped on a black wig um, and some uh, ill-fitting um, swimming costumes and jumped <laughs> in and did it, did it for herself. Um, and then the scene uh, where Helga Brandt's plane uh, crashes somewhere in Japan, they actually filmed that in Scotland. So, uh, mm. yeah, Scotland doubling for Japan there. But Japan in this movie is one of those rare occasions where you really feel the location. You know, mm. it yeah. feels like a travel log movie. You feel like you're there. You can feel the sweat. You can feel the humidity there. I think it's such a great location for this movie. Definitely. Yeah. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But let's return to our conversation with AJ Black um, about to hear more about Connery's time in Japan because he didn't have an easy time. Yeah, so uh, while I was looking at this, the making of this film, um, just the initial reaction when he got to Japan, some of the stories that come out are, are alarming, aren't they? How he was treated. Yeah, there were there were a lot of things in there that were, you know, that were frustrating for him during the making of it. There's um, really good stuff on the making of documentary where you can see when they're in the fishing boats uh, mm. uh, scenes later on. You can see there's boats being chartered of of press just to sort of mm. come in and 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 film them and um as we know from sort of experience that getting on water's hard enough in itself, not let alone with having <laughs> boats and stuff floating around yeah. behind you yeah and other other stuff I can't imagine it would have been that sort of nice to film in those temperatures either i re- I seem to recall them talking about how uh, uncomfortable it was shooting there as well. Yeah, it was mm. the humid humidity was was unbearable at times, wasn't it? Um, yeah, but they, they, you know, they tried to sort this out by getting guards. He had twelve guards, didn't he? Um, right, which worked for a short time because one morning then they turned up and all the guards had cameras. So, <laughs> so that an end to it had to be put to that. So everything they were trying to sort of diffuse the situation, it just wasn't working. Mm. Yeah, and it, it just it just rolled him up terribly you know mm. that the, the the constant press intrusion i think he described it he, afterwards he said he suggested and that the timeline doesn't exactly match up i suppose but he compared it to beatlemania you know but i think he said something along the lines of with well, the beatles there were at least four of them you know mm. i was just on my own you know where he was dealing with that amount of intrusion so yeah it, it just got it got too much for him well, I think the timelines do match up, actually. And, and in fact, the, the fact that you mentioned the Beatles, I don't know if you've read AJ Chowdhury's and Matthew Field's book, Some Kind of Hero, mm. but they make a really good analogy that in 1966, the Beatles stopped playing live because at Shea Stadium, the, it got so big, so loud, they just couldn't be heard playing. And they yeah. say, you know, Sean Connery gets to Pinewood in the biggest set that's ever been built in, in Europe, and it, they it, they just can't hear him anymore. Um 
you, you can't see the acting anymore he just feels completely yeah. done and so that's what why he decides to throw in the towel i think it's a really good uh really good comparison mm. um mm. but yeah i mean i guess sort of combined with the 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 not enjoying the work and then also the intrusion as well you can kind of see why he'd want to get out of it at this at this stage yeah yeah and you know he wanted he wanted to look ahead and he wanted to stretch his wings i mean the same the year after he does some he does a western to shallico you know which is a very different kind of heroic role but it doesn't do massively well and it's a strange sort of co-production kind of film i think it's partly filmed in spain and he he, he veers much more off into quite period territory and he plays he plays in some ways quite smaller much more scaled down if not grittier, but much more scaled back kind of roles away from that exuberism. Because, you know, because as we say, with You Only Live Twice, like you said, it gets bigger. It is the biggest Bond film in terms of scale, you know. So particularly the Ken Adams' amazing volcano set, mm-hmm. you know, at the end um, that, has ever, that had ever been. So he, he really did make a conscious effort at that point to scale it all back. You know, he, he had a real issue with being that superhero figure in popular culture at this stage, that everyone wanted him to be and all of the fans and all of the press, you know, Sean Connery is James Bond, you know, which was emblazoned on a lot of the posters. And he, he hated that kind of thing as well. You know, he really, he hated, it was things like around the same time that um, his brother was going to Italy to do a tiny, strange <laughs> film called OK Connery that they actually named OK Connery, <laughs> where he plays himself, Neil Connery, as a James Bond figure you know, as a, as a knockoff. And he hated all that stuff. <laughs> you know, he really did. He didn't want to be involved in any of that. Um, and it really frustrated him. It felt like people mugging off his name almost, you know, making a profit out of him, trying to leech onto him, you know, and, and he, 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 he didn't want any of it. You know, for, for somebody who was so famous, he was quite, a, in some ways, quite a conservative private man. He didn't really go out and do the hard drinking party and like some of those other new wave guys did. You know, he didn't really want that. So I think that's where it got it got too much for him. Mm-hmm. So it's back to Pinewood, and we'll talk about now probably the the, sort of the absolute pinnacle of Bond production design, Blow, Bond, Blofeld's volcano lair, and this is the site for Spectre's uh, launch site for Spectre's spacecraft. Uh, and it was built into the an extinct Japanese vo- volcano. Now, don't think too hard about the logistics of that. Um, <laughs> just enjoy the the dream logic of that and how uh, how you would go about doing that and how, what that would cost. But the idea, like I said, they came from them flying over this volcano and thinking, oh, wouldn't it be cool to put a base in there? And so Ken Adam was then tasked with designing it. Um, and it would end up being the biggest and most complex film interior ever built in Europe by that point. And it was big enough to fly a helicopter through it. When asked how much it would cost after looking at the initial um, sketches, Ken told Cubby Broccoli about a million pounds. Cubby went, let's do it. So that one million figure, uh, that obviously is more than the entire budget of Dr. No, um, which is uh, something we've talked about in the past. So built on the Pinewood lot, it was actually built over the tank, which is where they end up in the future building the 007 stage over. So where the lair, where the volcano lair is, is where now where um, the 007 stage stands. Uh, but in comparison to the 00 stage, 007 stage, um, it actually, that volcano set occupied twice the footprint and height of the 007 stage. Wow. 
So it's, it's the biggest Bond set ever, basically, I think. Um, and so it had the, the heliport, it had a operating monorail. Um, basically, it was a 360-degree set in some places where you could just walk around and it felt like a real place. Um, and you could actually see the set from the main road up to three miles away. And you need to see the photos of this because it is absolutely unbelievable. But they, the top of it is open to the elements, basically. It looks incredible. And one of the facts I read was it required more tubular steel to build than was used to build the London Hilton Hotel. It was 200 feet across, 55 feet high on the side, rising on a slope up to 125 feet high, 70 feet in diameter, uh, 700 tons of steelwork, and it took 50 plasterers and 60 riggers working day and night to build it. And talking about the set that he designed, Ken Adam said, the nightmare comes from suddenly realising you have designed something that has never been done before in films, and that is bigger than any set ever used before. You wake up at night wondering whether or not the whole thing will work. And it was such a landmark build in the British film industry at the time that the cast and crew would bring their families to Pinewood at the weekends to see it being built. And the builders literally worked round the clock. And Ken Adam uh, recalled um, he was at a party one night, uh, but he ended up leaving at 2am to go down to set to see the set being built with his wife. And they took a bottle of brandy with them to the builders, climbed up to the top and enjoyed a drink with them. Um, but the space itself was, you know, open to the elements. It was really difficult conditions to work on and absolutely freezing cold. And Lewis Gilbert recalls thinking, I, oh my God, we're going to have a blue leading lady. But when it was finished, they opened this set to press and they had a big press event. Um, and the photos ended up uh, in newspapers all around the world. And so filming began in there on the 31st of October 1966. And cinematographer Freddie Young said that it was going to take every lamp we have, plus all the candles we can find too, to light it. Um, which is quite a funny, um, <laughs> funny vision. As discussed, you know, Bob Simmons was the stunt coordinator on this film and he coordinated the ninja assault on the base. He hired 120 stuntmen for it, with 40 of them sliding down ropes into the base. And all they used, their safety equipment, was a, a length of hose pipe on the rope to slow them down as they were repelling wow. down into <laughs> the base. And I think one stuntman actually misjudged it and ended up breaking his feet or his ankles or something. Ugh. Yeah, it's crazy. And in this scene, famously, they introduced this idea of the use of trampolines to simulate explosions for the stuntmen. But I know, I know you're a fan of this sequence, Brendan. I mean, it's an absolutely phenomenal achievement, I think, on camera. You can't quite imagine it, can you? Being there, mm. it's 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 a lot to even. You look at it, go. There's no way they'd do this now. No, like, this is insane. It is insane, yeah, yeah, absolutely insane. I think probably for health and safety reasons they couldn't do it now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Should we talk about another health and safety disaster? Another memorable moment from this film is Little Nelly. And Little Nelly had been discovered by Ken Adam. And he was listening to the radio and um, had heard Ken Wallace, who um, was a, a wing commander, and he'd created a small one-man helicopter uh, and so he's talking about that on BBC Today program. And the film, the film had a, an aviation advisor called Hamish Mahadi, and so he called uh, Ken Wallace, and he said, "Can you come and de demonstrate this auto gyro at Pinewood?" So Ken Adam, if you remember way back when, episode one was a fighter pilot during World War Two, 
so he was obviously impressed with this, especially after the demonstration as well. He'd, he'd seen it in, in action. So um, Ken Wallace said, Cubby Broccoli stood looking at it. And he said, we shall want it in Japan in six weeks' time. <laughs> Typical Cubby, isn't it? Demanding. But um, Ken Wallace was actually meant to be scheduled to appear in a James Bond spoof being shot in Brazil uh, when he got that call. So obviously you sack off the spoof, don't you? And you go for the real thing. Um, and then obviously, you know, with that, with that in mind, they want, they know they want to use this, uh, little Nelly. Roald Dahl has to find a place for it. So he did, he managed to slot it into his script. So Ken Wallace also met with John Steers so that they could talk about any weaponry and how it would, how it would look and how it could be adapted to be more of a bond gadget, I guess. Um, and he said there was a thought of having a corkscrew on top of the rotor blades that you screw into the enemy helicopter. But I didn't think that was a very good idea. <laughs> no, one step too far, that one, I think. Um, Ken Adam said it would be interesting. It, so it's Ken Adam's idea is why we've got this weird shot in the film where it builds itself, you know, the do-it-yourself mm. Um he said, so that, that being a part of its, of its charm, uh, he said, so I came up with the idea of, of the very chic crocodile, crocodile suitcases. Uh, and they were, they were designed by Ken's wife. So yeah, like you said, this was filmed in the mountains of Koyushu and this was directed by Peter Hunt. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's good that they gave him this cause this is, you know, he goes on to, uh, well, his next film is on the Majesty's Secret Service, isn't it? Which heavily relies on aerial shots. Yeah, helicopters, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, to get this scene, the seven and a half minutes it is, little, little Nelly's on screen, Ken Wallace spent 46 hours in the air <laughs> and and took off 85 times, which uh, is, is insane, really. So, uh, yeah, Peter Hunt said that this sequence was uh created because they had a proposed they proposed a car chase in the screenplay um but then they discovered this and they just obviously replaced it so whilst filming the scenes i think if 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 you remember if you go back to jay we talked about johnny jordan they were doing they were shooting some scenes and um there was an updraft and johnny jordan who was getting some of the shots uh his foot was severed by the helicopter below it went straight through his foot oh, um, God. yeah absolutely awful business and um so obviously he was whisked off to a hospital and um they did manage to reattach his foot but later on after he was ill for a long time and he was getting like really good health care and and cubby obviously was looking looking after him and stuff but um it just it wasn't getting any better and he was really in a in a bad way so unfortunately after he had to have it amputated in london but once once it was amputated he was he was back um he made a really quick recovery and um he continued working with a prosthetic foot so because of the the shots that involved explosions the japanese government didn't allow them to to get those shots um so they moved to torremolinos in spain um, because it resembled most most closely to the Japanese landscape. And then, yeah, if you want to know more about Johnny Jordan, if you go back to the J episode, 
Um, yeah, we did it because it um, it does have a, a sad ending, unfortunately. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a it's an interesting scene. What do you think of the little Nelly scene? Well, you say that it, uh, Roald Dahl slotted it in. I would say more like he shoehorned it in because it's kind of it's a little bit incongruous <laughs> with the rest of the film. It does feel like they found the gadget and then and put it in. I would like to see a gyrocopter return um, to a Bond film. Um, oh yeah, gyrocopter and a jetpack. They're the, the two. Yeah. Mm. In 2021, uh, Shuttleworth, um, which is a place near me, it's an airfield, which is the home of Little Nelly. I went to see uh, a gyrocopter display there, and the new ones look amazing. They're absolutely like, they've come up leaps and bounds. And I actually met Major Ken Wallace's wife there. Um, Mm. I I bought a Little Nelly postcard from her, and they're trying to raise money to restore Little Nelly to flying conditions. So, um yeah, if you were uh, ever at Shuttleworth in Hertfordshire, then you can go and see Little Nelly. Um, wow. There. Yeah, so there you go. Hello, Base One. Listening. Little Nelly got a hot reception. Four big shots made improper advances towards her. But she defended her honour with great success. Heading for home. Let's go into post-production then, and I tease some editing drama, but um, like I said... With Peter Hunt temporarily out of the picture on You Only Live Twice, Eon hired Thelma Connell as editor. She was a regular collaborator of Lewis Gilbert's. Um, But when Peter Hunt returned from Japan, uh, he'd actually made up with Cubby and Harry. And um, due to the the, the second nature, uh, sorry, the second unit work that he'd done there, they'd basically patched things up. And so um, when he came back to England found Thelma um, Connell editing the movie. Uh, Peter basically wanted to get back involved with the editing. And there was reports that there was an early um, cut that Thelma had done of the movie, which is 133 minutes in length. Um, But she was really struggling to get the film into shape. And so Peter Hunt came in, muscled her out of the picture. She left the movie and Peter Hunt took over editing. And his reward for getting You Only Live Twice back into shape, like he had done with Thunderball... He got to direct on a Majesty's Secret Service. But the question a lot of people have asked is, um, is this deleted footage? This film was 15 minutes longer when Thelma Connell was cutting it. Where's all that footage? What what happened to it? Um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's an intriguing what if of, of what was cut from the movie. Oh, I thought you had an answer. I don't have an answer, my friend. Oh. But titles, what do you know about the titles, Brendan? Uh, so titles, I mean, we've got Morris Binder back again and um, he really leans in heavily to the, the to get flavours of Japan in this one and also a nod to the uh, the finale of the film. Um, so we see lava uh, and volcanoes. Obviously he uses silhouettes and the typeface is, is uh, oriental as well. But Daniel Kleiman, he actually notes it as one of his favourites. So Daniel Kleiman obviously does does them now. Um, But he said, uh, I think it's my favourite sequence because I love the Japanese imagery. I think it's so clever with the parasols making these amazing patterns and the colours are really spectacular with the geishas and the volcanoes. I love that era of imagery, so it's nostalgic for me as well. It's such a great song. And Nancy Sinatra does it so well. It's a great sequence. I love it. Um, what, What do you think on these titles? I have to totally agree with Daniel Kleinman. I think it's some of my favourite of the pre-title uh, of mm-hmm. the of the title sequences. I know we talked about in Thunderball, 
um, that really being the one that cemented the template for what we expect from Bond titles. But Morris Binder yeah. here is this is where this is one one um, instance where you can see he's taken what he knows and just moved it on leaps and bounds uh, into something bold and new. And then you'll see it again with uh, Honor Majesties. Um, but this one really stands out for me. Music for the film. You've got John Barry returning for his fourth Bond score. He had had um, sort of huge um, success with Thunderball. And in the interim between that film and this one, he'd written the music for The Chase, Born Free, The Wrong Box and The Quiller Memorandum, which was another spy film. So you can see now John Barry is really becoming an in-demand writer. And I think You Only Live Twice, the score is absolutely magnificent. Mm -hmm. um, it's built around three sort of main themes. You've got the title song, the space march, and then a romantic theme as well. Um, unlike Thunderball, though, John Barry didn't visit Japan on this one um, for inspiration. He sort of relied on his own imagination. He was probably too busy, to be honest. Um, but talking <laughs> about it years later, he said there was a more melodic and more... This, this was more melodic and more subtle. I tried to intertwine... The whole Japanese thing, the elegance, the oriental feel into the story. Um, and so the music for You Only Live Twice was recorded over six days between April 10th and May the 2nd, 1967. Um, and in comparison to, I don't know if you remember with Thunderball, but there was so much chaos and last minute changes. And, you know, with the yeah. title song changing and the music being added in, this one was much smoother sailing. And actually the film was shorter as well. And he needed to make less music. So you've got 65 minutes of score here. Um, and so Barry basically spent March and April writing the score and then April and um, the six days there recording it. Uh, but he was so busy working on You Only Live Twice that he wasn't able to attend the Oscars where he won two Oscars for Born Free. So, uh, mm. yeah, he had to enjoy that one from afar, sadly. But for me, I mean, Captured in Space and then the fight at Kobe Docks, I think, are both real highlights. And also the version of the Barry's 007 theme for the Little Nelly sequence is Chef's Kiss. I just love absolutely. the music in this. Absolutely. It's absolutely brilliant. One interesting thing to note, though, that annoyed uh, John Barry is that Peter Hunt used the original 62 recording of the James Bond theme in the helicopter chase. And that annoyed John Barry because he would have preferred the opportunity to rework it. Um, he said there was just no intrigue and no dramatically. Um, and he wished he had been given the opportunity to create something more interesting with the Bond theme. Ah, so the title song. Yeah, Um so it's a it's a ballad written uh, by Leslie Brickus. This one, and um, he said that 
he had a good time writing this one. He said he'd been invited down to Palm Springs for the weekend by Kirk and Anne Douglas. And uh, he took the music of You Only Live Twice with him. And uh, he had a an autumn Sunday morning. He sat and he wrote in Kirk's study. And he said he remembers smugly thinking as he sat there, how good can it get? I was the house guest of Spartacus writing for James Bond. So the track was written in uh, towards the end of 1966. And it was recorded by Julie Rogers. But... They both thought, both John Barry and Leslie Brickers thought that they could, could could get it better. And so they met in Hollywood in 1967, at the start of 1967, and they started again. Unfortunately, there was there was a slight bit of you said there was no tension on this, but in terms of right. the song, there was. Um, Harry Saltzman had hired a musical supervisor to oversee the score, and this had ramifications on the song because then there was a dispute over who was going to record the song. Um, so there's many different accounts of whether it was John Barry or the musical supervisor who um, rejected. Aretha Franklin, but someone did. Um, she was an up-and-coming star at, at that time. Um, but Lewis Gilbert said, when the movie was all over, Cubby told me that he was going to America to talk to Frank Sinatra. He was a great buddy of Frank Sinatra's. And the next thing I know, Nancy was doing it. So, uh, yeah, Frank apparently turned it down and passed it along, down the line, and it got to Nancy. And she said, uh, I was 26 and really scared. I'd rather have a root canal than go through that again. Um, so maybe they should have uh, tried to persuade Frank a bit more. Um, so because um, because of the, the style of the song, Nancy Sinatra said that she, she didn't normally sing songs like that. Um, and by the end of the session that they had at the recording studios, there was no version of Nancy Sinatra's rendition that was usable <laughs> and so John Barry said what's now in the movie is made up of about 24 takes it's a real masterpiece of editing there was just no way we'd ever have got it in one take sounds like our podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh but it did get it, it got finished um I think it complements the titles wonderfully and there was also, uh, so it reached number 44 in the US and number 11 in the UK. So in terms of the Judy Rogers one, you, it's, it's out there, you can you can listen to it. And it's appeared on some James Bond CDs as well, uh, compilations. Thank you. 
no. In the nine in the nineties, they uh, there was a an a, an alternative example of the theme song, um, sung by Lorraine Chandler, which was discovered at the vaults of RCA Records. Oh, interesting. And it, it it became a really popular track with um, the Northern Soul scene. So Chandler herself was known for her high quality soul output. Again, you know, you can find it. It's out there. It's quite good, actually. I had to listen to it. We'll, maybe we'll drop a clip in here. But it's, it, it pops up on a lot of soul compilations as well. Uh, so a couple of um, promotional bits to mention before we talk about the release of the film. But first of all, the posters. I have to mention the posters. We talked about on Thunderball because this is really the peak age of James Bond posters, in my opinion. You've got Robert McGuinness and Frank McCarthy returning to do the poster artwork. Um Robert McGuinness did the one where you've got Bond in the bathhouse with all the women around him and also you've got the bit the poster with little Nelly flying through the air um, and then McCarthy Frank McCarthy his is the amazing one of Connery walking around the rim of the the, the crater uh, in the tuxedo but it's got some really nice typeface work on it you've got the double use of twice the twice that splits in two um, you've got Connery holding um, the space helmet underneath his arm that's the first time you sort of see a variation on the on the on the bond silhouette with the space helmet under his arm and then you've also got the typeface screaming sean connery is bond in response obviously to casino royale as well um, but to just a, an amazing series of posters there the original artwork robert mcginnis's original artwork for you only live twice the bathhouse one came up for auction um, in uh, 2019 and it sold for $65,000 to a private bidder um, after an estimate of uh, twenty to 30000 So, um, yeah, a very popular piece of artwork, that one. Um, but something else to mention, a bit, a bit of promo work, Brendan, which uh, I really enjoy for this movie. It's a, uh, it's a TV special. Yeah, so United Artists, Artists Television, they produced a uh, one-hour special called Welcome to Japan, Mr. Bond. And it was shown in June 1967 in the US on the on the NBC uh, channel. And uh, it featured uh, Desmond Llewellyn and Lois Maxwell uh, reprising their roles of Q and Miss Moneypenny. Um, also, uh, Miss, Penny's, Miss Moneypenny's got an assistant in this. Yeah. Kate, is it Kate um, Mara? It's Kate Amara, yes. Yeah. And um, so the, the premise of this is it's, it's to show clips from the previous four Bond films um, and with little teasers from You Only Live Twice um, and interspersed. You've got interactions between the those three characters. Um, it's it's worth a look. It's on YouTube. It's available. It's, it's, it's out there. It's really worth watching, even just yeah. for the bits of Lois Maxwell with Kate O'Mara and Lois Maxwell with um, Desmond Llewellyn. It's yeah. like seeing a missing Bond scene that you've never seen before. I love it. I think it's so yeah. much fun. Money, Penny. What a delightful surprise. Oh, you don't often come and visit me. Oh, thank you, Q. <laughs> you obviously know much more about this than I do. Do you know who the girl is? Haven't a clue, Money, Penny. Haven't a clue. Well, can you tell me anything? Well, I can only tell you that I've spent weeks working on this Aston Martin trying to get it back into working order. I can't imagine what 007 does to leave a car in this condition. But yeah, it's a clip movie. And it's interesting to see a clip movie or a clip show made up just of the first four Bond films. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, nowadays you have all so many films to include, but actually you can actually look, 
sort of almost luxuriating in all these clips from the the golden Definitely. age of Bond, can't you? Yeah. It's, it's it's lovely. I really like it. So You Only Live Twice premiered at the Odeon Leicester Square in London on the 12th of June 1967. Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip were in attendance. It was their very first Bond premiere. Um, and also in attendance after missing the Thunderball premiere was Sean Connery. And he was there with Diane Shalento making his last, at that time, public appearance as Bond. Although he had a moustache and he had no wig on. So he looks very different to how he does in the movie. <laughs> And actually, in this movie, I'd say his his toupee is probably the, one of the worst. It's, it doesn't look very convincing to me in this movie. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I also think it doesn't help throughout the. I know it's problematic, but just to mention that when it, when he uh, he does change his race, let's say yeah. the wig because yeah, the of his wig, wig. You, yeah. it's really obvious it's a wig. Yeah. And so you just think, well, is the rest of it a wig? Is it, is it all a wig? Yeah, that's true, yeah. yeah. Uh, also at the premiere was Jerry Lewis, Phil Silvers and Vic Van Dyke, as well mm. as Roald Dahl and Cubby and Harry. Guy Hamilton was also there at the premiere. And then the film opened across the UK and United States the following day. It set an opening day record at the Odeon Leicester Square and went on to be number one in the United States with a weekend gross of $600,000. So slightly down on Thunderball, it took a global box office a haul of $111 million. That's down on Thunderbolt's $142 million. Probably impacted by Casino Royale, uh, let's be honest, mm. which is only out yeah. a few months earlier. That took about $41 million. So you've got to wonder whether or not people were suffering a bit of bond fatigue by that point. Uh, Review-wise, got decent notices. Uh, Variety said that Sean Connery plays 007 with his usual finesse. Um, Time magazine said that the outer space sequences would be more appropriate in a grade school educational short and the volcanic climax is a series of clumsy process shots that no one took the trouble to fix even Connery seems uncomfortable and fatigued as if he meant as if he meant it when he said it this would be his very last Bond film it may just be an off year for 007 New York Times said uh, although there's a lot more science fiction than there is first vintage James Bond in You Only Live Twice, the fifth in a series of veritable Bond films with Sean Connery, there's enough of the bright and bland bravado of the popular British super sleuth mixed into this melee of rocket launching to make it a good, a bag of good Bond fun. Um, Roger Ebert said a great deal of money was spent on the fifth Bond epic in an attempt to duplicate this mystique, but in You Only Live Twice, the formula fails to work its magic. Um it says Connery labours mightily. There is still the same Bond grin, still the cool humour under fire, uh, still the slight element of satire. And when he puts on the cute little helmet and is strapped into his helicopter, sometimes somehow the whole illusion falls apart. And the, but the film actually has a seventy-four percent approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes uh, from fifty-four reviews. So overall, generally, people are positive about the film. What about our mm. followers on Twitter, Brenda? Uh, yeah, so we've got uh, quite a lot of response from this. So it varies, doesn't it, from film to film? But over 60 responses on on this one. Yeah, um, so we asked for your three-year-old reviews on Twitter and you uh, send them in in your droves, and that is a lot. It is, yeah. So there's a lot of mention of uh, Connery's performance. Mm. So Mrs. Steve O'Brien said Connery looks bored. And Ryan Zia uh, Doge says Connery is bored. So, yeah, that's... Uh, Liam, HR, HRL, Connery getting tired. 
Martin Barrett says fantastic rooftop fight, and I do think we should mention that because I love that shot. Yeah, I think it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, likewise. Vinnie Harris ninety four says high adventure escapism. Sydney Compass says massively underrated masterpiece. Agree. E M Ling says Niven was better. Oh, harsh, <laughs> harsh, and and also I have to Not disagree. True. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Damn Fall Idealistic Crusader says Desperately needed Maybaum What do you think about that? Uh, interesting Interesting Because I think it would be a very different film without Roald Dahl Yeah I think so I think so No I'm sticking with Dahl on this one Yeah Yeah there's a lot of people saying I love you which, Yeah uh, I mean that's the code so, isn't it It's the, Yeah it's not really a review but uh, Yeah it's, it's noted Yeah there's, there's numerous mentions of the rooftop chase And also Connery looking tired or bored Ian Tempest says greatest theme ever. I don't know if that's the, that must be the song. I mean, I wouldn't yeah. say it's the I wouldn't say it's the greatest for me. No, um, but it certainly works with with the film that it's in. Yeah. Um, John Porter says bonkers, great fun. Okay. And Eric Newsom says Ken Adam transcends. Very nice. Yeah. Um, so I think I mean, there's no, there's no real sort of hate for it. No. And I think any, anyone with negativity, it's about Connery looking a bit bored or tired, which yeah. rather than rather than hate, that seems like it's a bit sort of a missed opportunity, it's a I guess. Or, yeah, constructive yeah. criticism, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's bring back AJ Black to have a quick chat about the film. And well, we'll turn at the end uh, just to wrap things up. So on this part of the... Uh, show we like to look at the sort of the history the, the, sort of the legacy of you only live twice um aj's back to join us for this section um uh, so we, we've talked about it at length obviously it was his final for at this time his final james bond film um but how did it sort of uh how, how did leaving bond at this stage affect connery's career going forward well, he kind of ended up in a bit of a a bit of a funny place because he was offered a lot of money to do uh, on a majesty's secret service and he turned it down and i think most bond fans imagine that's one of i mean as, as really good as that film ends up being it is kind of one of those lost great bond possibilities you know especially if he'd then gone on to do diamonds are forever and how it starts off then where he's avenging tracy almost <laughs> but it doesn't connect up at all and it's it's really weirdly done you know i think it would have been a potentially fascinating alternate kind of Bond moment had he done that. But he turns that down. He turns down the lucrative offer to carry on and do it at least once more at that point. And like I say, he goes off and he does things like Shalako. He does things like The Red Tent, which is a really unusual, uh, co I think it's co-Russian made movie where he's, he plays almost second fiddle to Peter Finch. And it's a, it's a dramatisation of a, of, a, of a crash in the 1920s. He plays Roald Amundsen, the North Pole explorer who disappears. It's a really strange film. And he's only in it for a small part. These are stuff like the Molly Maguires from Martin Ritt, um, which is an interesting film alongside Richard Harris, set in a coal mining town in Pennsylvania in the 1860s. But they're very, they are, they are dramas. They are much, much lower scale. They're not big... I know it was pre the term blockbuster as such, but they're not big movies that are going to drag everyone out to the from you know to the uh, to the cinema. So his star is on the wane really at this point. After he gives this up, he's he struggles really to click with that. With, he can't quite move into that next phase of his career that he wants because everyone still wants him to be Bond, 
and that's that's the tension that he finds as much as he's working with interesting directors and he's playing interesting parts he can't escape and that leads to the next part of the bond <laughs> story for him really because he kind of has to go back in some ways in order to get onto the next step uh, in terms of connery's bond films where do you where do you think you only live twice sort of lands for you in terms of his performance i think it's it's a difficult one because the, the cliche is to say he's bored throughout the whole thing i don't know if i entirely agree with that at all points really i think i think there are points where he is phoning it into an extent but i think there are aspects of your own live twice i think he's enjoying doing and i th- i think it, it, it's it's too easy to just say that it, it's all that he's it's his worst bomb performance i wouldn't go that far but i do think at this point he is in a weird way i think he maybe had more fun on diamonds are forever in some senses because that is a that is much quirkier film in a way and i think he he had the impetus of that in order to go off and you know the, the deal he makes with united artists with david pickett to make then two films he wants to do including the offense in the end with sydney lumet um so he got, he's got that spring in his step in a way to make diamonds to get it out of the way so he can do those other things whereas with you only live twice it's the end of a road really so i i i think it, he's okay in it but i definitely think I think he's almost at his peak in terms of that power in Thunderball, oddly enough. I think Goldfinger's the most fun one he's, he's doing, but I think he, he looks amazing in Thunderball and he's got that pure confidence and ease. And I think by You Only Live Twice, it's maybe fading slightly. I think there, really. Um, so it's it's a strange one. It's a strange one. I, I, I think after Thunderball and Goldfinger, I think his next best one, is never say never again <laughs> years later in terms of how how he looks and how much fun he's having but that's just me i'm a big fan of that one <laughs> big fan of dungarees i am dungarees. I love, oh yeah love dungarees <laughs> absolutely yeah <laughs> brendan do you do you see connery being bored in this one i i don't really i don't really get that from him i i, I get a an agent like if you if you look at him as the character i'd get an agent who has he's been there he's done that it's another mission he's getting on with it rather than bored um, and I, you know, I really enjoy this film, and uh, there's there's a lot of fun to be had. Um, with Diamonds Are Forever, it's that is a, an absolute slog. However, off camera, he was having way more fun, wasn't he? You know, so he's in, <laughs> he's he's going, he's, he's just gambling, he's playing golf, he's he's having a lot of fun with that, and gets one point two five million as well. So I'm sure that softens softens the blow. But yeah, oh, you only yeah. live twice. The off camera stuff, it's it's difficult to not let it seep in isn't it i think mm, yeah yeah he maybe feels a little bit heavy on him you know the weight of that is maybe sitting a little bit heavy on him and i think that maybe is where that comes across as boredom in in a way mm. but i don't think he ever really truly shows that in any bond film even though they vary in quality some of them i don't think he's ever shown boredom i think he's always trying to give that performance but by by the only twice he's just he just knows it inside out it's like doing a, a, a player on the hundredth night after you've done it all those nights before for him it's he, he, and i think he's he, i think he's he's not so much bored as as feeling like it's done i want to move on so and and he's got that heaviness on him i think that's the slight difference mm. with um 
with You Only Live Twice, compared, certainly compared to the previous ones in the 60s. Yeah. I, I mean, in terms of the legacy and, and its place in the canon, I think You Only Live Twice is really interesting because it's, like you say, it's the end of the road for that trajectory. And then what they follow it up with is something, you know, a complete left turn, really. Uh, in terms of the in terms of the scale and the, and and the yeah. gadgets and stuff that they sort of move turn away from, um, and then just one film after you've got Diamonds Are Forever. I mean, you put these th- those three films together, You Only Live Twice, <laughs> on, on the Magic Secret Service, and Diamonds Are Forever, and you could not find a more disparate trio of Bond yeah. films when they could have been the greatest, you know, the greatest Blofeld trilogy um, oh. of uh, of the whole Bond canon. Really, um, yeah. it's kind of it's kind of crazy, really. Yeah, it's it's also a shame that he didn't get to make the seventies Bond movie that he was he was planning for years. I'm sure you guys know all about that story. You know the Warhead, two thousand story that he wanted to do with sharks under New York <laughs> with lasers. It's kind of mad stuff that you feel like Mike Myers steals some aspect of later. But uh, you know he had plans to make Bond beyond Diamonds Are Forever, and it it, it being much more involved, and that would have been that would have been a lot of fun to see. But yeah, he's. I think that the the great thing about Connery's Bond films, I think, is that they're all kind of different from each other in a way. Even though they, even though they have a lot of the Bond templates, you know, particularly Goldfinger onwards, they're all definably their own thing, really. And that's that's the joy, I suppose, of going back to them now. And you know, I mean, everyone says Diamonds Are Forever is one of the worst Bond films, and it it kind of is, <laughs> but. <laughs> I, no, not, there's no. It kind of is. It is, but I can't help but enjoy it every time for loads of reasons. Like particularly John Barry's score as well, which is amazing. But like, yeah, he's <laughs> like you said, Brendan. He's probably having more fun offset yeah. <laughs> than we are watching it. Oh well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Tony. It's been a real pleasure to have you joining us to talk about Connery. Um, Thanks a lot. Uh, and the book Cinematic Connery is out now. It's got some wonderful yep. artwork on the front cover by our friend, friend of the show, Sean Longmore. I'd highly recommend yep. it. Yeah, People can pick it up wherever you, you buy books, I guess. Yeah, published by Polaris. So if you can buy it from them, fantastic. But yeah, it's on Amazon. Uh, it can be ordered in all good bookshops if it's not already in there. Um, so yeah, please do go and pick it up. It will give you lots, uh, lots more depth on all of his movies across his career. So if you do, go and buy it. Thank you so much. And thank you guys for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Um, so for you Brendan I mean overall you're a big fan now I am which is strange I think because the, of the Bond films that I like on the whole I prefer a more grounded Bond film I think right because I really love From Russia With Love and, and Goldfinger and they're very different films to this one but then a lot of very Bond different. films are very different to this anyway yeah um, yeah. apart from Spy Love Me which is basically a carbon copy <laughs> the same film yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but I think everyone across the board knows they're so confident and comfortable with what they're doing at this point. They've turned it up to eleven. Yeah, those that Kobe Doc scene is is absolutely superb. Um, mm-hmm. The final sequence is is incredible. The music's great. Um, yeah, the the script is a bit silly and fantastical in places, um, but it just does it. I just think this is. Um, this is almost like if you were to describe what a Bond film is like to someone, this is how you sort of would describe it, right? The the villain lair and the, the gadgets and all that sort of stuff. I mean, absolutely. And, and it shows from the amount of references and homages 
that we get moving forward. I mean, there's a whole Simpsons episode yeah. based on it. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, th- and a film franchise, Austin Powers, you know, really borrows from this. Um, yeah. And and Casino Royale 67 as well. It's funny how it's, it's, I mean, they choose the, isn't he cryogenically frozen in 1967 as well? I think he is. That's, I think he might be. Yeah. 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 So I, th- I mean, they're, they're, they're just, it's full of nods to this film. Um, and the, this version of Blofeld is the one that gets referenced across all media. Absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. just, I just, I just think it's, it's so much fun to watch yeah. as well. It's really Absolutely. enjoyable. Well, on that, Brendan, that wraps up our James Bond film specials. We've done all 27 Bond films um it's been quite an epic journey uh interested to listen to back to them in uh, in release order eventually mm. but that means that our next episode will be our xyz episode which will be our, our last episode uh we will follow that up with a uh last last episode uh, but um <laughs> looking forward to it uh if you want to send in uh your questions for us or clips or anything that you want to ask us before we finish the show then please email the show on podcast at jamesbond a to z.co.uk and if people want to find us on social media at jamesbond a to z on facebook instagram or twitter and yeah so um yeah you only live twice it's done uh so it just remains for me to say that the james bond a to z podcast will return next week ciao should have said sayonara James Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. gentlemen welcome to my underground lair i have gathered here before me the world's deadliest assassins and yet each of you has failed to kill austin powers that makes me angry and when dr evil gets angry mr bigglesworth gets upset and when mr bigglesworth gets upset people die (laughs) Whoa!